Welcome to Sober Doc Coffee, a weekly coffee chat sharing experience, strength, and hope for anyone on the sober road to recovery. You can download Sober Doc Coffee weekly on all podcast platforms and check us out on Instagram at Sober Coffee Podcast and on Twitter at Sober Coffee Pod. To learn more about us and to help support these sessions, visit online at Sober Coffee. Here are your hosts, two guys on their own path to recovery, Mike and Glenn. Let's join them at the coffee shop. Good morning, Glenn. Hey, what's up, Mikey? Good morning. Got Sober coffee? coffee. Man, look. Well, it's three quarters of the way full. I might have to go get a refill. Well, we'll just, uh, we hang around here long enough. We'll yes, we do. Yes, we do. So, uh, how are you doing this morning? Are you uh, ready for a big, uh, big session? I'm always ready for a session. I'm always curious about what we're going to talk about. Some of these are planned. Some of these are not. Um, it's just like jumping in the coffee shop with us. And uh, we just love coming in and talking about sobriety, talking about experience, strength, and hope. And uh, we also love chatting with people out there. So uh, our email, you know, for those listeners who want to plug in. Now, just a reminder, our email is totally anonymous because I know a lot of people's emails have their, like, real name on them. Uh, but we will never share names. Um, and we will co- keep them anonymous, but it's podcast at sober.coffee. So if you ever have a question for us, you ever want to jump on and join us in the coffee shop, we'd be glad to have you. The coffee's always always full and always hot. Yeah, reach out and, and check out the website too because uh, the resource room is always growing. Oh, we always have new stuff in there. And Oh, man, you're doing a good job in that resource room, Mikey. Uh, I know, I nice, love it. Nice you know, work, man, nice work. There's a couple Zoom rooms if you want to catch a 12-step meeting that sometimes you'll find glenn or i at and uh yeah check out the resource room speaking of rooms i actually went to my first in-person meeting in probably nine months shame on me but i go to probably seven or ten zoom meetings a week but i finally went in person and i felt like a newbie i felt like a newcomer walking in the room again it was great yeah it's good stuff highly recommend it yeah you betcha so glenn we have our laptops in the uh in the uh, coffee shop again today because we're going to love it. We're going to, yeah, we're going to go high tech. We're going to zoom somebody in. What do you think? Man, I love zooming. Let's do it. All right. Well, uh, you probably have a better introduction to this because you've known Lisa a little longer than I have, but, um, you're, you, you started out in Twitterville with, with Lisa, right? Yeah. So I've got a Twitter account. It's, uh, at stay sober today. It's not really associated with the show. It started probably seven years ago or so, but, you know, and, and it's anonymous, but it's me. Um, and I, I put it out there just to connect with sober people and just kind of share some things that, because early on, I mean, there were some thoughts I had and, and, and questions I had, and, and I didn't want to say this stuff out loud in the room, you know, or, or I didn't want to say it to my sponsor, and I was just still put my toe in the water a lot. So I threw it out there on Twitter. And I think I've got 2,500, you know, people I connect with. And, and I go to it daily now. And sometimes I share stuff about the show. But, I mean, I just share thoughts out there and, and I engage with people. And, and it's really valuable to me. You know, I've got a lot of good tips, a lot of good tools from there. Um, and about a year ago, you know, my timelines, you know, are, are terrible. But about a year ago, you know, I started following um, this woman, Lisa Boucher. And, and I was just, I just learned how to say her name because I would have said Boucher, but it's B-O-U-C-H-E-R, but it's Boucher. And, and I'm telling you, it was just, you know, some people put out sarcastic stuff and some people put out stuff that doesn't make sense at all. And, and, and she put out filet mignon, 
I mean, just really good stuff that I was able to bite into and chew on. And, and, and I actually thought about it through the day and I talked to other people about it. And, uh, and, and so, you know, along the way we connected and I said, Hey, we're doing this podcast with you. And she's an author and, and she's got so much going on. And I say, Hey, would, would you ever consider, you know, jumping on our podcast with us? And, and believe it or not, she said, yes. So great to have her here. Uh, Mikey, I'll bounce it back to you for the, the official, uh, welcome, but Lisa really pumped to have you here this morning. Looking forward to hearing about all your projects and all your stuff. But, you know, most specifically, just about the tools of sobriety and, and, and how you're embracing that. Yeah, yeah, it's good stuff. And Glenn handed me the ball and said, hey, she wrote a book. Well, I'm the reader. <laughs> I'm the reader of the two. So yes, I you quickly, are. I quickly went to Amazon um, where me and the Amazon guy have a personal relationship. And I said, I got to have this book, Raising the Bottom. And uh, so he was so nice. He delivered it the next day. And, and uh, I cracked it open and... Um, you know, I, I won't do it justice. Lisa's going to definitely walk us through the book a little bit. But I got to tell you, uh, she had me at at, uh, at the intro. She had me in the first pages of the book because I could relate uh, so much to uh, to her story. And uh, most importantly, and then I'll shut up and, and talk to Lisa here. But most importantly, um, she's as serious as about, uh, as about sobriety as I am. Um, it's a big deal. Uh, you know, we we banter back and forth here. We joke a lot. We we laugh at silly things, and and life is about laughing at silly things. But this this addiction pandemic epidemic that we that we're in right now is serious, and it's destroying lives. And you know, I don't want to be the doggy downer, but this is a serious thing. And so when you said you get your teeth into uh, the post that Lisa puts out. That that's how I I traveled through this book. I mean, it was all meat, and I I just sunk my teeth into it, and I kind of feel like I got to know Lisa throughout the book, and that's got awesome. to know her. Yeah, got to know her mission about saving people and maybe giving them a shot uh, to make a decision about consumption long before it's too late. So anyway, blah blah blah. Lisa, how are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me, you guys. Hey, Lisa. Good morning. Yeah, Good morning. We love, love having you. You know, we, we, we're, uh, equal, we're, we're equal geographic people, so we love people from the East Coast. I'm happy to be here. But though you would probably consider yourself more of a Midwestern, right? A Midwestern, yeah. Yeah, Definitely. sure, sure. Definitely. So, so, Lisa, your book, um, Raising the Bottom, um, Making Mindful Choices in a Drinking Culture, um, I... I I wanted to say, why did you write it? But boy, when I read it, I realized why you wrote it. But let me ask you the question. Why did you write the book at this time in your life? Well, prior to the show we were talking about, I used to write fiction. So this was my fifth book, I think. Um, and when I, I think I started writing really once I got, um, it was after I graduated nursing school, because from reading my book, I, I got sober, went to nursing school, finished nursing school, and like three days later, I start writing. I heard this voice in my kitchen, now I want you to write a book. I don't know if it was God mm. or whatever, but that's what started the writing trajectory. So I wrote fiction. And my mother, along her journey, when she got sober, 
she used to, you know, we'd talk because she was in Youngstown and I'm four hours uh, south of her. And so we would talk a lot on the phone and she said, what are you working on or what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm writing so-and-so book. And she used to say, she was always saying, Lisa, why don't you write about alcoholism and women? And, you know, there's so many legs to that stool. Which one do you pick? You can go in a million directions with it. So I never, I never did much with it. And then my mom passed in 2011. And I think it was her tapping me on the shoulder because maybe a year or so after her death, I woke up one morning and it's like a little banner. Birdie flew into my head and I'm like, that's it. That's it. And I just knew immediately raising the bottom that, you know, I had a very high bottom and you read my book. So, you know, my mother, Mike, had a very low bottom. And that, it just all came together that it's like, that's what I need to write about, that we don't have to hit these horrid bottoms, destroy our health and our lives and our families. We really don't have to. And I think that's one of the things in addiction that, that really bothers me a lot. We, you know, that, oh, you got to hit rock bottom. Well, no, you don't. Stop. We've got to stop saying that. You know, everybody's bottom can be different. And there are some people that are stubborn as hell and they're not gonna, or they are gonna have to get those real bottoms. But I think if we change the narrative and start talking about, you know, some of the earlier symptoms, like I did in my book, this restless, irritable discontent that our big book talks about, or, you know, my life was not working. When you're in college for 10 years, and you can't gather a degree together, what's going on? You know, and I tell parents, when you have a child, an adult child that just cannot launch and get out of your basement, the first thing you should do is be looking at what are they addicted to? Are they addicted? You know, maybe they're not, but a lot of times, nine times out of 10, that is the underlying issue. They're drinking, they're smoking pot all day, or they're doing some other drug or substance that prevents them from achieving the goals in their lives, if that makes sense. So that's kind of what brought it about. Yeah, you know, I love how you, I love how you talk about bottoms. Um, you know, I was one of those ones because I was I was stubborn and I was trying to do it my own way. And I was, you know, we, we chat about the word surrender earlier. I didn't want to surrender. I wanted to do it my way. And, and I was always smarter. I was always the smartest guy in the room. And and I had to find my bottom and I found my bottom. I kept digging and, and, and I found new bottoms. And, and, and I finally found a bottom that just wasn't bearable for me. You know, and, and that's where I surrendered. And I use the words, I just cannot take another drink. But I work with some guys, you know, sponsor some guys who I'm amazed. Um, you know, they still have their house. They still have their cars. They still have their jobs. They still have their families. And, and, and things weren't working for them as, as, as well as they could. But they didn't keep digging. You know, they were able to, you know, see the light. And, and so I love the fact you say you don't have to hit rock bottom. You don't have to lose everything. No, yeah, I, heard in the, I heard in the room one time that the bottom is when you decide to quit digging, right? And uh, and I'm going to get a smile from Lisa right now, but me personally, I was tore up from the floor up. Um, that's my new line. I love it. And, and you know, it, it I was ripped apart. I had to find it was my bottom. 
comparable to nobody else's. They obviously, I thought, could not feel my pain or relate to my bottom. But it turns out I walked into the rooms and people had, were at the same place emotionally. They were just in a different place physically. That's all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's we all do have our different. I, I think in recovery, it, the pain tolerance gets less and less. I have a very low pain tolerance now, which is a blessing, right? Because then it keeps us on course. Because when you can stand all that suffering forever, it does prolong it. But I do think a lot of it is the societal narrative. I mean, think about how drinking is, it's just so prevalent and so pushed and it's assumed that you're gonna drink and we all need to start saying, you know, when somebody offers a diabetic a cupcake and they refuse it, they don't get 20 questions. Right. No, they don't, no, they don't. Right, so what is no, that's right. And I think we all need to start saying, you know, no is a full stop, right? And, and just pushing. No is a full sentence, right? Exactly. And and pushing back against some of this ridiculousness. I mean, it really is, if you think about it. It is the only drug in the world that people badger you to use it. Like, what you is know, going on? Yeah, you know, I saw something recently, which I love, and, and, and I'm amazed. I mean, I, I have read a million plus things about sobriety and, you know, all the statements and quips and whatever. And, and now memes, right? But, you know, it's amazing. I still find fresh new stuff. And I just saw something recently really hit me. He said, I want to, and, and, and some, some woman said out there, she goes, I want to glamorize sobriety to the same level that these big vodka companies and liquor companies glamorize drinking, you know? And, and, and I, I really aligned with that because Sobriety, I, I remember the first, I was at a party, this is 30 years ago, and I met the first sober person. And she goes, I'm in AA and I don't drink. And I was like, oh my God, I felt sorry for her. Like, I, I really felt sorry for her. And, and, and that was my mentality for, for many years. Well, until recently when I'm sober myself and I'm living a great life. And I'm like, I understand what that girl said about, you know, glamorizing sobriety. So I really like that. Yeah, I do too. I think that's what we need to all do. Make it cool. Sobriety is the cool, right? Yeah, I mean, what you said about, you know, working down the bottom, for me, I got used to, you know, it's like boiling a frog, you know? I mean, if if, if I was at, you know, 10,000 foot and you say, hey, Glenn, if you keep drinking, you're going to go to zero. First of all, I wouldn't have believed you. Mm -hmm. Second of all, you know, I, I didn't go from 10,000 to zero in one day. I went, you know, one or two or four feet a day, you know, and progressively over time, you know, and, and just like a frog, you know, if you put a frog in boiling water, it's going to jump out. But if you turn the degree up, he's going to sit there until he boils. And I boil, mm -hmm. you know, and, and so I'm really aware of that. But but I also realize with recovery, I don't go from zero to 10,000 in one day. That's just not me. I mean, some people do. And that's great. I applaud them and I'm kind of jealous. But it's it's a couple steps up every day and you eventually get to the 10,000 or 20,000 foot. Right. Right. It's good stuff. And one of the one of the things that jumped out at me early on in the book when you talked about uh, your turning point and there were several references to your turning point. But uh, the, the sentence that struck out to me was the exact same sentence that I said out loud. And I said, is this it? You know, is this really where my life has become? What happened along the way? Drinking was fun for, I don't know, a minute. And then drinking became fun with some problems. And then drinking became pr 
problems. And, uh, you know, is this it? And that was my turning point for me. It was just a realization that I had rode that pony as far as I could ride her, you know, and, and I needed more. And I think your book delivers on more. So after you talk about uh, the challenges you had growing up and the challenges you had in your early adulthood, uh, you quickly moved to the promise and some tools and hope you know, I, I love it. I just, I love to read that way. What, um, what, what kind of was your talk about your, your turning point, your moment, uh, of clarity, if you will. And then, uh, and then what you immediately started doing about to, to change the course of your direction that you were on. Um, well, I think for most of us, we, we know long before we quit drinking, that we should probably quit drinking, that we're drinking too much. And so for me, it was about two years. I quit drinking when I was 29. And I think I started to realize I was drinking too much around 27. You know, I was a flight attendant and you're living that lifestyle all over. And it wasn't until we were living in Texas, we moved back to Dayton and life, I, I went back to a marketing job, a nine to five job. So I went from this big, like the first year of our marriage was like one big date, right? And it was just fun. And we're meeting in different cities and it's just fun. And we come back to Dayton and it was like real life. And I just couldn't cope. I mean, it was like this nine to five routine. My husband was building his law practice. He's busy. I was like, I just couldn't deal. I could not deal with a normal life. So I'm hitting the bars and my turning point was, I, like I said, I'm working in this marketing job and I was about two blocks from this adorable little bar that I started to go to at lunchtime. And I remember sashaying over there one morning and I'm like furiously pulling on the handle and it's not opening. And I'm being, what? like, I am like panicked, you know, that where your heart starts beating and I'm having like a meltdown internally because I can't get this door open. And I look at my watch and it's 10 in the morning. And that was like a bucket of cold water. That hit me hard. You know, one of those things that like, you have that moment of kind of clarity, but you shove it down. But that really startled me. Like, cause I was always like, I don't drink in the morning. I don't, but it's 10 o'clock in the morning and I'm craving a drink. So I, that really bothered me. Um, I go back to work and then I went at noon, you know, and the whole bar knows you kind of thing. It was like my Absolutely do. Right, yeah, so. They've got your number. That's always a red flag when everybody in the bar knows you. Clearly you're there too much, you know? So those were the things that started to, and then like I said, you know, I I had been in college for 10 years, hadn't finished my degree. I was just, kind of floundering really so so that's when i knew that it was probably my drinking and then my husband said something about it and my mother started to chirp in my ear because by now she i think was seven years sober and she was chirping in my ear when we were living in dallas she said she noticed that um i guess she heard the beer cans popping at 10 in the morning as I was <laughs> 
painting my nails and she tells this funny story because we're a big foodie family we're italian and everything is about the food and she said i knew something was wrong with you lisa when you made this stew and you just put the whole pot on the table you didn't put bowls or spoons or anything and i thought what is wrong with her that's awesome no, present, no presentation right right like it's just this pot of so she was so appalled with that but those are like the little things that it's like it's just not normal so i know when like i said she started to say something and it's just i don't i, I can't say it was anything dramatic but i had these things that and i wish i did write them down but i can't remember exactly everything but i kind of had these little for myself i said okay if this happens this happens or this happens i will know i have a drinking problem one of them was if i get drunk when i don't mean to get drunk because it's different when you plan on going out right, right? So that happened. And there was like three days in a row where I didn't really mean to get drunk, but I got drunk. And then that story about when I'm riding that little motorcycle through the beer drive-thru 16 times. And the guy at the drive-thru is like, lady, why don't you just buy just a 12-pack? And I'm like, I would never drink that much. And I go home and literally I'm looking at a trash can that is just cascading with beer cans and it was just like another slap in the face and then there was one more thing and I can't remember what it was but those all happened within like a three-day period and I just knew and I called my mom and I said I need to come home and I went home and she had her AA women were like a bunch of bees and they were buzzing in that house (laughs) I can picture that Oh yeah, she had a whole posse of women and coffee dates and that went on for about a week and I was going to stay a little longer and then I was like, you know what, I don't live here. I need to go back to Dayton and figure this out. So I came back, stayed sober three months, had a one day relapse. Um, So that's another proof that meeting makers don't always make it because I was going to a meeting every day but I didn't get a sponsor. I didn't work any steps and I'm mad as hell, even though nobody told me that I had to get sober, but I'm still pissed. I'm just angry at the whole thing that I really don't want to quit drinking, but I know that I probably should. And it was a struggle having a higher bottom because I'm sitting, when I got sober in the rooms, you know, it was a bunch of crusty old men and they drank for decades and they drank long and hard and i really couldn't relate and i almost walked out the door because i'm like i don't think i'm really an alcoholic because i wasn't drinking every day and um nothing bad really happened you know i hadn't been in jail no dui so it is very easy to justify you're drinking and you know but it was what it was doing to me emotionally and, and just like and i really want people to understand that it's not based on quantity because i think people have this thing in their head that unless they're drinking a fifth a day or 30 beers a day or whatever that they can't have a drinking problem and that is not true it's what <clears throat> does that alcohol do to you how does it change you when you ingest it and for me i am a pretty stable even keeled person and it made me like this like 
labile. I was all over the board. And that's just not my baseline personality. So I knew something was wrong. And um, I was crying all the time. And I'm not a crier. I think it's been 15 years since I like, you know, I just, I'm not a crier. So I'm like bawling and screaming and rage. And I'm like, something is not right. And my husband said, why? who have emotional problems. And I'm very grateful I didn't jump on that and grab on that because this is an RN. I see that a lot. Mm -hmm. I would rather come to that psych ward and be told they have anxiety and depression and bipolar and any number of mental health diagnoses than get sober. And in mm -hmm. every darn chart, nine times out of 10, not all, but nine times out of 10, substance abuse is the underlying issue. We would not have full psych wards if we didn't have the addiction problem that we have. And these doctors, that's a whole other, you know, I could go on for hours about that because it infuriates me of what happens to people when they come to the hospital. They just get medicated, they don't address the addiction, and their life rolls on like what happened with my mother, you know, that her went on. Yeah, I totally get that. And, and you, you said a couple things. I just want to revisit. You said some real pearls here. Um, one, when you went to meetings with all the crowds of the old men. Um, first of all, I, I try not to be one of those guys, right? But when, 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 I, when I talk to folks that come in early, especially like first step meetings, the first time that they're at a meeting, you know, because for me, I went in, I looked at all the differences. And I'm like, yeah. I don't belong here. I'm not like that. I'm not like that. I don't dress like that, you know, but, but somebody said, Hey, Glenn, look at the similarities, not the differences. And I started looking, I'm like, okay, did that. Okay. I can, I've, I'm there. I've done that. Boy, my head feels like that right now. And, and then very quickly, I realized I'm in the right place. Um, secondly, I love what you said about how much you drink. I remember going to rehab and there was a guy in there and, you know, I mean, I was drinking a handle of vodka a day. I think that's two fists um and 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 so i felt hey i'm an alcoholic i qualify and there's a guy in my rehab that drank a six pack a day and i'm like I, I, what why are you here like he says hey I, i'm on my way to work i pick up a six pack you know i drink it while i'm at work i shouldn't be drinking while i'm at work it's ruined my family i lost my job and 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 six pack a day caught his attention and, and said hey i need to get to zero you know and then I could speak for hours about what you just said about the psych wars and doctors because, you know, and I won't, but we, we've talked about it on other episodes. I had doctors give me every diagnosis in the world, except for alcoholism. In fact, I had a doctor told me I was borderline schizophrenic. And, and, and guess what, doctors, guess what? I stopped drinking. And, and at one point, I was on 11 meds. I mean, these were major meds. Seroquel, 1,250 milligrams a day. That's major drugs. I mean, if I took that right now, I'd be asleep for a month, right? Okay. But, but they, they give you one drug, and then they give you another drug to counteract that drug. And then I was on 11 different major drugs. And I'm like, that's one of the most irresponsible things. Nobody sat there and really talked to me about my alcoholism. Now, full transparency, I would have lied to him anyhow. I probably did lie to him because I knew what I wanted to say because I knew what I, I was self-medicating through them. But it's amazing how all that went away. And I'm on no meds today. Well, I am on a, a gastro med, but that has nothing to do with 
Right, right. No, it, I mean, Glenn, I think it's really important that we do talk about that more because people's lives are being destroyed. You know, I mean, that exact thing happened to my mother in the 60s. Her addiction started with Valium. Which yeah, was all that. That's, you know, first billion dollar drug, that whole Sackler. I don't know if you guys read The Dynasty of Pain. That's an amazing book about the Sackler family and the opioid epidemic and all that and how they knew what they were doing. And, you know, these doctors, I, I'm saying they're either corrupt and incompetent or they're just ignoring the fact and and i've seen it like i've lost so much respect for a lot of the doctors because you know they really don't care so much about the people when they walk out of their office they're worried about their kids soccer game and what vacation they're doing and if their wife or their husband or their partner is mad at them or whatever and they really don't care that they're destroying lives you know i mean what are these medications doing to your heart to your liver to your kidneys you know, took took me years to recover from that because I I I had all my my blood tests from when I went in to get all my detoxes, and then ten years later, I mean, it took ten years to repair a lot of those numbers. It was amazing. Well, that's it. And that's I mean, that's something that's very very serious. Like those meds are not without side effects, and for people to be taking, like Glenn was saying, eleven medicate. Are you kidding me? Like. How is that even effective? They're just throwing pills at people and saying, go home and, and die, basically. It, it disgusts me. And I just think we need to talk about it because people need to understand these doctors do not always have your best interest at heart. They really don't. And you need to wake up to that fact. And, you know, like God says, physician, heal thyself. Start, you know, looking into more holistic methods of getting well because big pharma offers no cures i mean they want customers and if people understand that on a very basic level i think your your healing can start sooner yeah it's funny i um i have a shoulder surgery coming up uh in in june and of 2022 and um i had my left one rebuilt 10 years ago and that was disaster for me. I mean, I that was six months of pain. I took a lot of opioids. And and so now, you know, I'm, I'm handling it differently, right? I mean, there's no way I'm going through that surgery without some sort of pain medication, right? It's just impossible. I mean, it's such searing pain. And and but this is my, my game plan this time. It's different. My doctor knows I had a when I scheduled the surgery, I looked at my dude and I'm like, look, full transparency, I'm an alcoholic. I got seven years, coming up on seven years sobriety. I said, I said, I, I, I need the pain meds, right? But let's manage them. And I said, I'm telling you right up front. I said, I, I don't have a problem with opioids, but I don't want a problem with opioids, you know? And I don't want opioids to open the door back to booze, right? So my doctor knows, he's on my team. My sponsor knows. He's on my team and my wife is going to manage the pills, right? So, you know, I mean, it, it doesn't mean because I'm alcoholic that I shouldn't take opioids and sit there with searing pain for six right. weeks. We don't have to be martyrs, but exactly right. you have a plan that actually makes sense, you know? Mm -hmm.
The only part of that plan I'm going to disagree with is telling your doctor, unless they understand addiction, which most of them don't, doesn't really mean anything. Because as a nurse who used to work in a level one trauma center in the emergency room, and I can't tell you how many patients I would see coming in and would do the responsible thing and say to the doctor, hey, I'm in recovery, as he's sitting there nodding, writing a script for Norco. Right. And he'd hand it to him and I would tell him, well, if you're in recovery and you have a problem with opiates, you better rip this up right now. Because clearly yep. the doctor didn't understand what you just said. He could have written them a prescription for Tramdol, which is at least not an opioid. Yeah, but that, see, see, he actually, because when I said that to him, that's the first thing he said. And I'm like, dude, that doesn't work for me. You know, well, I have a high. Not for a shoulder surgery. Right. Because Right. The biggest. I know my son's from football because you're involving back muscles, chest Everything. muscles. It is one of the hardest uh, joints to rehab. Mm -hmm. So I get what you're saying on that. But I'm saying as an example for this other person who was like, right. I don't want any opioids. And the doctor gave it to him anyway. Yeah, so, I mean, you have to own your own. You have to own your own you game. You have to be responsible because yep. I've say well my doctor prescribed well come on you know you yep. can have a lot of dishonest motives and go doctor shop and get what you want and say well but it's prescribed i have a sponsor yeah. did that i mean what? he's he has he was addicted to xanax and he, he's like i should do your acting different he goes well my my doctor gave me i'm like did you tell your doctor you're a xanax addict and you're an alcoholic right he goes well well no i'm like well why not he said because he wouldn't have given it to me I'm like, yeah, dude, you might as well bottom on the corner, you know? Yeah, we have to be responsible for ourselves because these doctors wreck a lot of people. Absolutely. So, question. You're out there a lot of social media. I, I love your content. I mean, as I said earlier, a lot of meat. Um, you know, what What are you doing? Like, what? what's your strategy there? What's your why? And, I mean, I'm sure you're connected with some really cool people, right? Well, I think so, but um, you know, I'm making kind of a shift, Glenn, with this. I I'm shifting a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit from, you know, we get sober, we find recovery, but now we have to sustain it and live in it. And that's where I think we need to, not maybe we, me, that's where I want to kind of shift. And so like with my next book that's coming out, it has more of a spiritual component because for me, what is keeping me sober? Who is keeping me sober? It is my connection with God. And I believe that this is a spiritual program and people that don't believe in God still find their way. I mean, I had a very good friend who was a self-proclaimed atheist who was the most sweetest guy ever and i really don't believe he was an atheist because when you got to know him and you hear him talk i think he was more agnostic but he mm -hmm. wanted to say he was an atheist whatever um but just a super super person so you know he found a way to live but but that's kind of where i want to focus it's like we get sober and it's all like oh yeah I'm well, now you got to sustain it and you got to live it. And it's not always easy living sober in our boozy culture, like we were talking earlier, with relationships. You know, I know my marriage early on, well, I don't know, not early on, for a long time was very challenging, you know. And had I not had the twins right away, I might have gotten a divorce. But, you know, I mean, once I had the twins, I'm like, uh, I'm not trying to, 
be a single mother with twins and all this stuff. And thank God, you know, we're still married. We can't believe it. We laugh all the time about like, how did you know, how did that happen? And I think I remember this is a true story and I want to tell you this. So our marriage was such a wreck, but my kids were like seven years old and I had again my criteria. I told my husband, I'm going to France. I wanted to go to Lourdes. And I kind of decided if he bulks or says one word about me going, that's it, I'm gonna file for divorce. And for whatever reason, he just nodded and was okay with manning the kids and all this. So I went to France, the Lourdes, and that's a spiritual place. I don't know if you guys are familiar with mm -hmm. it. The Blessed Virgin Mary, Jesus's mom, appeared to these peasant children there. And mm. where she appeared, was like in a grotto and a spring has sprung up. And so now there's this healing water that many, many miracles have happened in Lourdes where people, there's crutches hanging from these, you know, wires that they put up, people that literally were healed. And, and you go into these baths and it's just a very, and I went, no, wow. it was very empty and it was very spiritual. And I came back healed in a different way. I didn't get maybe the healing I thought, but I got the strength to endure in my marriage, to keep our family intact for my sons. And I remember standing in my kitchen and we were thinking about doing counseling and all this. And I was like, I, don't, I was just so disinterested and I didn't even want to do that. And I thought, I said, no, I'm not doing any of it. And I ripped up this paper and I'm like, I'm not doing counseling. I'm not doing anything. And I said, God, if you want this to work, you're going to have to fix it because I'm done. And I literally surrendered. And I can't tell you what happened, but over gradual, over time, here we are, you know, 36 years later. Wow, just, that's great. That's yeah, great. Surrender is a great word. Surrender. It's just like, give it up to God if it's supposed to work out because I was just done. You know, we cease fighting anyone or anything. And I was done fighting for my marriage. I was done fighting. I was just, and that's when I started writing. I was, a, you know, worked part-time as a nurse. I got my twins. I just focused on my life and it all just worked out. So that is miraculous, you know, when we can let go. And that's what I want to focus on is helping people with the surrender part of their recovery, with the surrender part of their living, because that's where we get strangled up is in living and dealing with other people and relationships. And, you know, and I think talking is overrated. Sometimes we need to shut up, you know, and just let things work themselves out. That is so true. The uh, in in the book uh, "Raising the Bottom," I think you called surrender the epicenter of recovery, mm -hmm. and uh, you know that is so true. And I love Glenn's story of surrender. And mine was not dramatic. Mine was simply murmur, just spitting the words out almost silently. Help! I need help. And you know, I, I've said it before, but I believe my God heard me say help and uh and then physically my wife was in the room go figure and boy that changed the trajectory of everything away we were off for help but but yeah surrender i i believe i agree with you is the epicenter of of recovery and uh and i'm so glad that you wrote this book because i think i have people in mind i i plan to be a repeat buyer because i've underlined the snot out of mind but um First of all, I want to I want to tell any of the male listeners out there that um, there's a 
an absolute connection to this book, whether you're male or female. Um, you know, the story, there's probably more stories from gals in there, and there's some great, just some great testimonies. There's a couple of guys in there, but but as Glenn said, look for the similarities, and I found it, and uh, and I found a message of hope because you talk about uh, the 12-step, and you talk about how it keeps coming back to the 12-step, and maybe there are other things that work out there, and Glenn and I explore those on Sober Coffee. You know, it, it's it's probably not the only game in town. I just know that it's the game that keeps coming back to me. I'm surrounded by people that the 12-step recovery worked, and I believe, like you do, that uh, you know, Bill W. was was divinely inspired to write this book. I, you know, it just makes so much sense, and um, I just, I've got some people in mind that need to read this book, and and I was, I didn't know it, but I was one of them that needed to read this book. But but I think that it is such a valuable tool, and it would melt my heart if if a young lady, a young man, got a hold of this book. It could it could change everything for them, you know. It, it possesses that power if you read the words, because you don't soft shell it, you know. It's it's pretty straightforward what you're writing there that there is hope, but it's going to take some work, and people want to avoid the hard way. They want the overnight. That's why they, well, they people go to doctors because they want that quick fix. But I wanted a pill that would fix me tomorrow, and it that, doesn't work that way. And I know it's it's there is no shortcut. But like what um, Mike was just saying, there was uh, some lady on social media. This has been a couple of years now, but she contacted me and said she found my book in a library in Tennessee, and she got sober and she's still sober. So. I see. Her That's amazing. That's amazing. So, so, yeah. So, Lisa, how, how do people find you? They can find me on Twitter at L Boucher Author. I'm on Instagram, same handle. I'm on Facebook. Um, so, yeah. I and then my website, RaisingTheBottom.com. I think I'm going to be changing now. My website is in undergoing. I think I'm changing that as well to L Boucher Author, just so that. Okay. Since I'm writing different books, but they could probably still find it under RaisingTheBottom.com because I'm gonna right. have them linked, and we're kind of in the process of revamping that right now. Awesome, awesome. And of, co- of course, Glenn, they can find a link to the book as well as a link to uh, her social media, Lisa Boucher's social media on uh, our, in our resource room, uh, the book. Sober dot coffee. Sober dot coffee, yeah, not sober dot coffee dot com. We're we're just, just sober dot coffee. I know. Right. Big biggest right. question: Is there dot com after sober dot coffee? Nope. Sober dot coffee. Did you get that where you didn't have to do a dot com or a dot org or. I know, Glenn. He's you our. Guys are uh, special. Yeah, d- d- digital right. genius. There. Digital genius. Yeah, I'm special, all right. So, Lisa, thank you so much for jumping along with us. Thanks for joining us in the coffee shop. Thanks for sharing some tidbits. I love chewing on some of this with you. And, uh, you know, hey, I hope our paths cross again and, and, you know, we can jump on another coffee. That would be great. I really, thanks for having you guys. You're both terrific. Good talking with you. Yeah, thank you so much. Send me the link and I'll tweet it and Instagram it and stuff and get you guys some more attention. You deserve a lot more. We'll do. Thank you, Lisa. Thank Thank you, Lisa. Have a great day. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. 
Thanks for joining us for today's Coffee Chat. To contact the show, email us at podcast at sober.coffee. If you need immediate help, the AA hotline is 800-839-1686. The National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 800-273-8255. Remember, Mike and Glenn are sharing their own journey on the path to recovery. Any suggestions, medical or otherwise, are their own experiences and should not be viewed as professional advice. See you next week, and remember, there is a solution.